It's a pleasure to welcome uh, Peter Bell uh, back to the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, Peter is a 1962 graduate of Yale University, where he majored in history. He concentrated in field one at the, at, here at the school and did research in Mexico for his summer internship. He emerged from the school with strong interest in economic and social development, and his career since then has crisscrossed between international and domestic policy and governmental and nonprofit agencies. Upon graduation, Peter joined the Ford Foundation and worked there for 12 years, 10 with its program for Latin American and two in New York. Um, focusing on domestic social policy and education for public service. Moving to Washington in 1977, he served as special assistant to secretary and then as deputy undersecretary of health, education, and welfare. He later became president of the Inter-American Foundation, a quasi-autonomous government agency that supports grassroots development in Latin America. After a stint as a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Peter returned to New York as president of the Edna McConnell-Clark Foundation, a private foundation committed to improving conditions for poor people in U.S. cities and in developing countries. Peter is well known, a well-known leader in global philanthropic and humanitarian endeavors. For the past seven years, he's been president of CARE, one of the world's largest private international relief and development organizations. He's credited with expanding the scope of the organization from providing immediate relief to focusing on the root causes of poverty. CARE has become a force in sustainable development and emergency aid, reaching tens of millions of people each year in more than 60 countries. Before becoming president of CARE, uh, Peter had been a member of the organization's board of directors for seven years, the last as its five as its chair. Peter's volunteer positions include being co-chair of the Inter-American Dialogue, trustee of the Bernard Van Leer Group Foundation, and trustee of the World Peace Foundation. He formerly was Director of Human Rights Watch and Chair of both uh, the Board of Trustees of the Refugee Policy Group and the Advisory Committee of the Woodrow Wilson School. The author of Fulfilling the Public Trust, Ten Ways to Help Nonprofit Boards Maintain Accountability. He's also written articles on international affairs for major newspapers. It's a real pleasure to welcome Peter back, but before uh, he gives his talk, we have a special presentation from Joe Harris. Uh, Peter Bell, MPA 1964. The students of Woodrow Wilson School welcome me back warmly to your alma mater. It's a distinct pleasure and honor to have you with us here today. Uh, in my meeting with you earlier today, you might remember that I mentioned my own interest in writing to you. What I didn't uh, mention to you was I'm the editor-in-chief of the Postcept, which is the, satir the satire magazine of the graduate division of the Woodrow Wilson School. To that end, we have an issue that came out today. It's uh, specially catered to the Woodrow Wilson's changing demographic. It's called Missept. I, I like the color. <laughs> be Christina Graff, you can meet her afterwards. Christina will be at dinner, I think, actually. So. Um, with, with, but more importantly, even, than the cover, uh, within the publication, we have a special inaugural feature this time called Hot Practitioner of the Month, <laughs> where we honor you, MPA's 1964, and the many worlds of Peter Bell, policy stud, fashion innovator, and Emily's dad. <laughs> We thank Emily and uh, Karen, obviously, for their great contributions and your contributions yeah, well. to the world. So thank you. Well, thank you so much.
I'm, I'm glad at least there wasn't a mole in our household that, that uh, Karen actually obviously uh, contributed to this. I'll, I'll look at it more carefully later. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, a delight for me to be here. It's uh, been a couple of years since I've been back on campus, and it's uh, wonderful to have the opportunity to be here and, in fact, to be with numbers of you in, in multiple settings over the next several days. On uh, Saturday, I have to give a rather formal lecture, and uh, so uh, in consulting with uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, we thought it was perhaps more in keeping to be quite informal uh, this afternoon, and, and uh, she felt that it perhaps would be helpful if I uh, elaborated on uh, the resume that Dean Trussell recited a little earlier and tried to draw, tried to give you some feeling for the different experiences that I've had in, a, in at least one person's career in public service, and then share with you some of the lessons of that experience and uh, then perhaps open it up for, uh, for questions. Um, the, gee, where did it all begin? And I'm really not sure, to tell you the truth. Uh, for me personally, I'm inclined to think that my interest in international affairs actually began in, with a kind of perverse reaction to my very first television memory, which was of watching the McCarthy hearings back in the early 1950s. And uh, as I said, I had a kind of perverse reaction because I remember uh, Senator McCarthy in, uh, cross-examining the, uh, the China hands. And he was excruciating these, these China hands uh, for being communist sympathizers in some ways, and I was listening to them and admiring uh, their efforts to try to understand China in its own terms. And I think it was back then that I acquired a, a, my first interest in international affairs. And then, you know, that built. I had an opportunity to be an exchange student in Japan when I was in high school and lived with the Japanese family. And uh, then later on, uh, when I was in college, uh, helped to build a cinder block school in a, in a village of, uh, of local Jodo and the Ivory Coast, and that was very important. And then uh, all of that eventually uh, pushed me in the direction of the, uh, of the Woodrow Wilson School. I was had the distinction of being part of the first uh, post-Robertson class uh, after the, uh, the $35 million gift. Um, and uh, these were, were very heady times uh, back in, in the school. Uh, but we also, I remember this was actually the period in the first year, and I think this was a tradition for many years, maybe you've gotten beyond it, but this was the period when we kind of wondered why in, after the, in the first year, sort of as we, after we got through the first semester, you know, why had we come here? What was it all about? Does it all fit together? Why am I taking all of these courses? You know, will it ever make sense? And uh, we had our gripe sessions with the dean and so on. 
And then it, you know, it took really until probably early the following fall where everything seemed to sort of come into place. I, when I came to the school, uh, I, I, my initial intent had been to join the State Department. Um, I had f for some years sort of envisioned myself eventually becoming part of the Foreign Service. But I was, uh, the more I thought about it, I, I, had, uh, I had some real reservations about uh, our policies, so the U.S. government's policies in Vietnam. And the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to me that joining the State Department, becoming a Foreign Service officer under those circumstances was going to be a little too much like joining the Army. That is, I was going to have to be very disciplined. I wasn't in a way which I didn't quite feel comfortable with at the time. And on a summer research project in Mexico, I'd become acquainted with the Ford Foundation and its then training associate program and applied for that program and found myself uh, having been admitted as a, uh, or as accepted as a training associate in Brazil. And I was very excited about uh, Brazil at the time, the decision that it was uh, a uh, thriving uh, democracy, but one with some heated debates within the country at the time. This was in 1964. And I, uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to Brazil. I was very excited about it. Of course, between the time the Ford Foundation and I made our decisions and the time I actually uh, learned uh, Portuguese and arrived in the country, uh, the coup d'etat of 1964 had occurred, and Brazil had not a, a democratic government but an authoritarian government. Still, uh, this was a terrific uh, first job. Initially, it seemed, for looking back on it, perhaps a little bit uh, academic um, in the sense that the principal work of the Ford Foundation was to build graduate uh, departments and graduate schools in various disciplines, including the natural sciences, the agricultural sciences. And I was there to try to help kind of pu push us. Well, they had, the foundation had also gone into public administration and, and uh, in economics. But I wanted to try to push the foundation more in the direction of social sciences, uh, political science, political sociology, and so on. And this all had to do with kind of a view of development. The, uh, at the time, the predominant view was the development mainly had to do with industrial development, with building up of infrastructure, uh, and that science base was what was important, plus economics. And uh, some, of, some of us uh, coming out of the Woodrow Wilson School had a, a different uh, view, that it had to do not only with industry, but agriculture, not only agriculture, but culture, and that the political and social aspects of development were as important as the economic and industrial. So I was working in the development of, uh, uh, particularly of, of uh, political science as uh, at the graduate level in Brazil, which hardly existed. Now, I had two experiences during my civil years in Brazil, which were really critically important uh, to me, at least personally. Uh, not, uh, and they were kind of gave me brushes uh, with uh, certain reality. One 
Early on, uh, a young man uh, came to me whom I had actually been following. He was the only Brazilian at the time whom, about whom I had learned who was uh, actually studying in a graduate department of political science in, in the U.S. Uh, he was, uh, and he had returned to Brazil to work on his master's uh, thesis at UCLA in political science. But then he was having trouble getting a visa to come back uh, to the U.S. And I happened to be in Belo Horizonte where he was trying to get his visa and he, and he asked me if I would come and try to help him with the consul there. And I agreed to do so. And we went to the consulate and my friend uh, Bolivar went in, uh, the, the consul said that he, he demanded that he see us separately rather than together and my friend went in to try to find out what the problem was. He came out looking very crestfallen. I then went in and I asked the consul what the problem was. And the, the uh, consul said, I can't give him a visa. And I said, why not? He has an excellent record at UCLA. And he said, well, because he's the real thing. And I said, well, what does that mean, the real thing? And he said, he's deep red. And that was the end of the conversation, so far as he was concerned. And I walked out into the room met my friend Bolivar, and we walked out, we went down the elevator, and as we walked out of uh, the building, the Brazilian secret police came and apprehended him, put him in the back of a, tr a closed truck, wouldn't let me get up with him. I uh, went back upstairs, see the consulate, ask him what was going on, uh, he could give me no satisfaction. And then over the next uh, 60 days or so, engaged in a very intensive effort to get Bolivar released. Um, and uh, eventually we were able to do so. Uh, no charges were ever brought against him. I did, I had been participating in an international political science meeting that we had assembled and uh, when we found, were able to find out the military fort where it was being held, we were able to get a, we got into a bus and we went out there and demanded to see the prisoner to make sure that he was still alive. And in fact, they did display him at a distance. So that was at least reassuring. When I um, returned to Rio de Janeiro to the Ford Foundation headquarters, I, I learned from the person who was in charge then, the acting representative, that he had heard uh, about what I had done and had sent back then a cable to the New York headquarters um, urging that I be dismissed from the Ford Foundation for unfoundation-like behavior. Luckily for me, the director of the Latin America program was a graduate of the Woodrow Wilson School. <laughs> and he sent back a cable uh, congratulating me rather than firing me. But what happened was that uh, that whole experience could have opened up things to the Ford Foundation in Brazil. Word got around that the Ford Foundation was not just working on the sort of scientific, technocratic side that we were open to the a, a, a larger sort of intellectual range 
uh, and philosophical, political range of views. And uh, a, a, a couple of years later, when a whole group of uh, social scientists were thrown out of the, the State University of Sao Paulo because of their political and uh, ideological views, uh, a group of them decided, a subgroup of them, decided rather than do the professional thing and go on, uh, go into exile, they would try to start a freestanding social science research center in Brazil. And the leader, uh, or the leaders of their group, came and sought uh, us out at, at the Ford Foundation and asked whether we could help. Well, once again, um, I mean, these were a first-rate group of social scientists. And um, we worked with them on the development of a grant proposal, sent it first to the Ford Foundation. It was not successful. Sent it. Uh, it they thought it was too controversial. Well, we worked on it some more, sent it back. Uh, meanwhile, I got a call from uh, the deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy telling me that if I knew what was good for my career, I would desist in this recommendation. How he knew about it, I'm not sure. But uh, we, we went ahead, Ford eventually approved the grant. And uh, this center uh, was established and became uh, the premier social research center in Brazil and one of the premier centers in Latin America. And later on, uh, Fernando Enrique Cardoso, who was the Brazilian with whom I was negotiating this, became a leader in the movement for redemocratization within Brazil. And, of course, has just uh, completed his term, second term, as president of Brazil. The, uh, and as it turns out, too, just to show you, if you sort of keep going in this work long enough, you have the opportunity for these circles to come and open and close time and again. The social scientist who I mentioned earlier, Bolivar Lomonier, is now uh, ha has also been director of a uh, social research institute in Brazil. He now happens to be chairman of the board of directors of CARE Brazil. And Fernando Enrique Cardoso uh, has just accepted the uh, position of being co-chair uh, with me of the Inter-American Dialogue, a group fostering dialogue among leaders within the hemisphere. And next week we'll be together at a press conference issuing our report uh, in, in Washington. So these are relationships that have gone back, go back now for me, uh, you know, more than more than 35 years, and have been uh, tremendously rewarding personally, but also helped, I think, even though it wasn't my intent at the time, to really open up uh, the work of, of the foundation uh, in Brazil. After uh, five, uh, working in Brazil for, for four out of five years, and in between I was assistant to the Woodrow Wilson graduate uh, who was director of the Latin America program in New York, I then uh, went to the Ford Foundation, uh, excuse me, to, to uh, Harvard for a year. I always had this idea that it was important to try to alternate um, kind of uh, practical experience with uh, some occasional work back in a think tank or academic uh, setting to try to 
sort of pull my thoughts together to try to re restock my some sort of intellectual capital. Uh, and so I had this I had a, a real opportunity to uh, at the expense of the Ford Foundation to go to Harvard. I say a real opportunity because it was a problem to them. I had sort of worked my way up uh, within Brazil, within the foundation, but they had never appointed a field representative in a country who was uh, less than 30. And I was 29, and they were very intent on aging me for an additional year. So I had the, this uh, chance at their expense to go to Harvard for, for a year and to do some uh, teaching and research there, which I did. And it had a, another wonderful benefit, and that is that at the end of that year, I also uh, married uh, Karen, uh, who uh, was just graduating uh, from, uh, from Harvard and whom I had met when she was doing the research for a senior thesis in Brazil. Uh, we then set off uh, for Chile, and between the time, again, still with the Ford Foundation, but between the time that we uh, made the decision to go to Chile and the time of our actual arrival, uh, there, were, uh, there were elections in Chile, and the uh, Salvador Allende uh, was elected uh, as the as socialist uh, president of Chile. Uh, so that, too, was a change in context when I arrived. Actually, the Christian Democratic uh, government was still, still there, and the CIA and others were busy trying to stage a coup kind of unsuccessfully, and eventually the change in, in, uh, in government actually came about. It was a, an extremely interesting and, at the time, for me, actually quite exciting opportunity because the Allende government had committed itself to trying to make a social legal transition uh, to, soci to socialism and uh, the so-called Via Chilena. And drawing on my Brazil experience, I was intent on trying to open the work of the Ford Foundation up to working all across the political spectrum um, and drawing on uh, people of, uh, of uh, very diverse uh, intellectual orientations. And it was, uh, it was an environment that was filled with tensions, uh, but it's certainly in the first couple of years there are lots of intellectual uh, energy at the same time. And then on uh, another 9-11, uh, but th in this case 9-11-1973, September 11th, 1973, a military coup was staged. And um, it was the Pinochet coup that overthrew the Yandi government and uh, resulted uh, also in, in the death of uh, Salvador Allende uh, by, by suicide. The, when that coup occurred, there was the opportunity, indeed the necessity, to make uh, transformations in the role of the Ford Foundation. Again, we had been there primarily to build graduate departments and, and research centers and across a range of disciplines. But there was a, a debate that ensued within Ford. Should the Ford Foundation turn into essentially an anti, a kind of inflation-fighting organization, training 
development economists working in advisory services to government and trying to help uh, the uh, military junta in effect and the Chicago boys who had been, uh, as they were called, who had been introduced into the economic ministry uh, to help them get inflation under control or should we in effect become an organization that was trying to defend in advance um, human rights and uh, academic uh, freedoms uh, within within uh, Chile. And um, those of us, finally, who were advocating the latter course, that is that we in effect become a human rights organization, went out. It was a very, it was a very lively debate uh, within, within uh, the Ford Foundation. Uh, and what happened, and, but it ha also happened very rapidly, uh, of course, and what, and what happened for me personally and for others of us on the staff is that over the uh, following uh, weeks and months, uh, we had the opportunity to save literally hundreds of lives and careers of people who in some cases uh, were already imprisoned and we would learn that they were being tortured. What we came to find out was that if they were offered jobs abroad or offered fellowships uh, abroad, including at the Woodrow Wilson School and at Princeton, uh, as soon as word got back to the Chilean government, the torture would stop. Uh, often they would be released. Almost never were charges brought against them. And as I say, uh, all told, I think by the time we were through working with uh, the uh, academic associations and universities in this country and in Europe and Canada and elsewhere in Latin America, there were actually many hundreds of people whose uh, lives and careers we were able to, uh, to help save. The, um, in the process of this work, uh, over uh, eventually I was declared a, uh, quote, suspicious person, unquote, by the Chilean junta. And while I remained in Chile for a period, I came to realize after a while that uh, my, my usefulness there was probably waning and uh, that the work of the foundation could probably get on better without my being there. Uh, so I returned to the United States and uh, was fortunate enough to do something which at the time was relatively rare within the Ford Foundation, and that is that I crossed from the international side of Ford's work into the domestic side and began working on social policy issues uh, within the United States. Uh, and worked much of my work was through a program in, called social, uh, called public policy and social organization. And we were able to look at sort of policy issues that didn't fit anywhere else within within the foundation, and that was uh, very enjoyable work. It gave me a chance. I mean, I thought that some of the issues that we were facing in Chile were in part due to what was going on sort of within the United States and within our own politics, and it gave me an, also an opportunity to, I think, gain some better understanding. Of, of, uh, of what was going on in this country. But it also led uh, to my having an opportunity to go to the Department of Health Education, the then Department of Health Education and Welfare at the outset of the Carter administration 
initially as a special assistant to the secretary with Joe Califano at the time, and also as director of something called the Special Studies Group, which was supposed to look at kind of long-term policy and planning issues within the department. But of course, any time you sort of get together a group like that in government that has you know, a long-term time horizon, it becomes, in effect, the, the kind of firefighting brigade because it has the capacity to respond to immediate crises. Uh, I also had other responsibilities, and uh, eventually uh, I was uh, promoted to become a Deputy Undersecretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. One of the, my responsibilities from the outset uh, was uh, eventually to help in recruiting the, the top sort of couple hundred people into the senior positions within the department, working with the secretary. And as we, we filled those positions, working with uh, different sort of cascading levels of people within the department. Uh, it was uh, a terrific experience in many respects, uh, but I learned a few hard lessons along the way, as I have in virtually every job that I've had. Uh, one was that, as I mentioned, there were a couple hundred positions well, Hamilton Jordan, who was the chief of staff for President uh, Carter and had sort of been the head of the campaign for President Carter, had 50 campaign workers whom he wanted to place at uh, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And we were determined to do open searches for each of these 200 positions that I mentioned. And, you know, we were doing these searches, and we were quite far down that list, and we had not placed a single one of the 50 campaign workers. And, you know, I, I came to believe, as we studied their resumes and interviewed them, that it was running a campaign and governing are two very different tasks and demand different sets of talents. But. Eventually, we could have reached uh, a high level in a high-level negotiation with the White House staff that we would take, I forgot whether it was five or seven of these workers, and we would place them for 90 days at the department. And I believe that actually two of them passed muster and remained. Well, that did not endear us uh, to Hamilton Jordan, and uh, we had a troubled relationship with him and the senior political domestic staff uh, at, the, at, the, uh, the, at the White House ever after. We also had some problems. Uh, this is, seems kind of naive in retrospect, but I remember uh, the Chicago machine wanted to name uh, the director of, our, of the department's regional office for the Midwest. And they had a candidate, a specific candidate in mind, who'd been the deputy mayor of Chicago. And uh, he came, came and he was interviewed by various of us. And it was so evident that we would have absolutely no authority over him. I mean, he was, he, he was an inveterate, you know, ribbon cutter. Uh, in fact, one of my colleagues joked, you know, when he shook hands, it was like that. The, the, uh, at any rate, we did not hire him, and I was quite proud of Secretary Califano for sort of standing up and uh, hiring a, a much better qualified person for the job. But of course, what happened in turn, in turn was that the 
Congressman Rostenkowski from Chicago, who had uh, been behind the recommendation from the beginning, was chairman of one of the key committees of the department. And our key piece of legislation was on hospital cost containment. And he switched from having been for it to being against it, just as payback. So I learned something, you know, President Carter had a campaign motto, sort of, why not the best? And I learned something about why not necessarily the best. Uh, I, uh, I also, it's interesting, in virtually every job I've been in, I haven't been able to shed the sort of international side of my interest. I discovered at the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare something I hadn't known at all before I went there. And that is that um, you know, there's a lot of international activities in which the department was engaged. And one of my sort of er the areas that I was given was to help, you know, uh, negotiate agreements with a number of other governments in, in, um, uh, for exchanges in education and, and, uh, in, uh, health and in, and in uh, social policies as well. So I, did so with uh, Israel and Egypt and uh, came to an abortive uh, negotiation because we cut it off because of human rights violations with the Soviet Union, but I did also with uh, China and, and Italy and other countries. It just so happens, in fact, that I was, with, I was in China with Secretary Califano when President Carter, who was beginning to geared up for the next round of presidential elections, decided uh, in consultation with his political staff uh, to fire Joe Califano and uh, because he wanted to sort of dampen down some of the higher, more controversial, higher profile issues with which we were dealing, particularly one in which was near and dear to my heart for which I had given, been given lead responsibility, which was the anti-smoking campaign because that was so critical with some of the southern, which what were viewed as some of the key southern states. Um, ironically, if we hadn't been in China, but if we'd been back in the United States, it's probably true that Joe Califano would have been able to be closer to his mentor, who was Walter Mondale, the vice president. He might not have been fired at all, but here we were off in China. And after he left, uh, the principal programs on which I've been working was in the area of uh, Indo-Chinese refugee resettlement and the development of a new Refugee Assistance Act. Um, and I found that my progress on those was really slowed by Secretary Harris, who, who succeeded Califano, because these were viewed, again, as being kind of controversial issues at the time. And finally, at a, I think it was our second senior staff meeting after she, her arrival, she asked why I kept bringing up uh, these issues on the refugee resettlement. And I have been trying to bring about a reorganization of the department that would help to expedite uh, the processing of the refugees in Asia before coming here. And anyway, I, I made the mistake of uh, telling her in that staff meeting because I thought it would save lives. And I realized as soon as I did that, my time was very limited. And the next day, she asked for my resignation. 
but the good news is that uh, a couple of weeks later, she implemented precisely uh, the set of, of, uh, of re reorganization recommendations that I had submitted to her. The, uh, I, I went on, and uh, after a brief stint at the, at the, Brookings, uh, at the Brookings Institution, I then uh, became, I uh, was selected as president of the Inter-American Foundation. The Inter-American Foundation, for those of you who don't know about it, is a small uh, public corporation. It's actually a government, part of the U.S. government, but it was set up, set up to be quite experimental and to be apart from the sort of partisan, uh, from partisan politics and from the kind of episodic, episodic swings in foreign policy as well. It was to be an experimental agency that supported grassroots development in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, it was uh, a very exciting uh, place to be. The, per the president of the Inter-American Foundation before me had been, uh, I think, uh, terrifically bold and innovative. I saw myself as coming in and helping also to kind of to hone and to professionalize the work of the Inter-American Foundation and to build its capacities for evaluation to build its ties to universities. We established a fellowship program, for example, uh, and uh, did other things to build ties to, uh, to university uh, faculty and to, uh, in, to inform our work. Uh, the Inter-American Foundation, however, was sufficiently successful that uh, there were people, uh, remind you, Mind you, this was still very much during the period of the Cold War, who thought it was great uh, that it was so successful at reaching democratically oriented grassroots groups in Latin America, but they wanted to take control of it. And this became accentuated uh, after the election of Ronald Reagan as, as president. Uh, and there were very various efforts to kind of take over the foundation. We were successful initially at mobilizing 15 of the 16 committee chairs in Congress uh, to support the continuity of the foundation and to urge President Reagan not to turn this into a politicized uh, uh, prize. Uh, the one committee chair who would not cooperate at that time uh, was, uh, was Jesse Helms. But uh, eventually, uh, the, uh, there was a uh, Cuban-American from uh, with uh, close ties to sort of the Miami Cuban community who was appointed as uh, chairman of the Inter-American Foundation when Congress was out of session. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, he and the board commissioned a report uh, from the Heritage Foundation, and they did you know, an assessment. And they said their conclusion was, it is well and good, I'll never forget these word, this wording, it is well and good to involve poor people in development, but it's wrong to let them be in charge. And uh, then that became the basis for a kind of midnight meeting 
of uh, the Inter-American uh, of the Inter-American Foundation's board, a majority of whom, who by then had been appointed by President Reagan, uh, a couple of them during a recess appointment when Congress was out of session, and they asked for my resignation. Um, I refused to resign, but uh, they then, of course, were forced to fire me. Uh, and afterward, uh, there were congressional hearings and uh, a kind of groundswell of uh, support for the foundation. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to say that the second shoe never dropped, that is, the, uh, this kind of right-wing group that had been formed never, in fact, did take over. And the foundation did maintain its continuity. I landed uh, after that. The next morning, you know, I was without a, without a job and um, also without any, any salary. Uh, and happily for me, I got a call uh, from uh, the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace asking if I would like to go there as a, visit, as a visiting fellow or a senior associate. Uh, Tom Hughes, who was that president, also happened to serve on the advisory council of the Woodrow Wilson School. And uh, I was delighted to accept his invitation. Funny, the second call that came was from the head of an academic group that we had helped to relocate from the Catholic University into an independent status in Chile because um, all the universities had been taken over by the military. And he invited me to come and uh, seek refuge with his group in Chile as well, which I will, will never forget. I was at the Carnegie Endowment. I had a, an opportunity to do something that I had never really done uh, before in my previous uh, positions where I'd been working very much within institutional settings, and that is I had an opportunity to gain my own voice on public policy issues. And I did a lot of writing of articles, op-ed pieces, magazine articles. Uh, these were new skills that I had to acquire, and I don't mean to say that it just happened overnight. I had to work at it. But uh, And I began to do media interviews, and I concentrated on two issues. One was the return to democracy in uh, the southern cone countries of South America, and the other was uh, the search for peace in the civil conflicts in Central America. And again, I had an opportunity not only to write about these things, but also to, to get involved on the ground. So that, for example, in El Salvador, I went to the first, uh, the very first peace talks between the, the uh, rebel leaders and the, uh, the government of President Duarte of El Salvador in the, I think it was in 1984, and in the mountain town of La Palma. And I didn't really go in an official role. I went with several other people. Uh, there was great concern about uh, the security of these peace talks. And so an international group of us went and we decided to just stand on the steps of the small church where those 
those peace talks were occurring in hopes that by the international presence we would diminish the chance that there would be sabotage or violence against the talks. And it certainly didn't do any harm, and it may have actually done some, some good. But I was very impressed in my visit to El Salvador and how spontaneously thousands, tens of thousands of people in the route from the capital, San Salvador, to La Palma had made little sort of white flags of peace showing that overwhelmingly they were yearning for peace in that country. Several months later when the peace talks seemed to be going nowhere, uh, with a couple of colleagues, I returned to El Salvador and talked again, had an opportunity to talk with the president. He said, well, the problem is Joaquin Villalobo, who's the head, was head of the main uh, guerrilla army. He said, if you want to do something, go talk with him, see what the problem was. Well, we were able to work it so that we were able to get through um, across the lines of the war uh, sort of unofficially go through no man's land I don't think I've ever been more scared in my life uh, cross uh, this has been prearranged cross a shallow river under the other side where there was a man sitting under a tree who was going to sort of make a gesture that would bring a truck and caught us up into the rebel stronghold for an, a, a, uh, an off, a about six hours of talks uh, with uh, Joaquin Villalobo and his rebel commanders. And we had a far-reaching talk about the possible conditions for a peace agreement, gave him a hard time for their violations of human rights, the kidnapping of civilians and the recruitment of child soldiers and so on. But he was there with his commanders and it was, and we talked a lot about what he would do and how he would conduct himself if there were peace and it turned out, I think, to be a quite useful uh, set of discussions that we reported back afterward to the Salvadoran government and then also to the U.S. government. And several years later, uh, when he, just again for the follow-on, when Joaquin Villalobo came to New York uh, for the final negotiations of the peace agreement, and it took that much longer, he sent one of the commanders over to see me and she uh, urged us to uh, reactivate, I was on the board of CARE at the time, to reactivate CARE's program in El Salvador as to be a kind of guarantor of peace and international presence there. And just a couple of years ago, I happened to, uh, to visit the program in El Salvador and ran into one of the other commanders also a woman whom I met at a reception that was given, and I recognized her right away because I recognized the scar from the bullet that she had taken in her chest. Uh, and uh, she was the counterpart in the local Salvadoran organization with which CARE has been working that had helped to obtain land title for 30,000 ex-combatants, rebel and non-rebel alike. And uh, I continue to be in email correspondence with her. Uh, she's now uh, at fairly advanced age for this, but uh, completing her law degree in El Salvador. Um, 
from uh, I realized that I wasn't going to be at the Carnegie Endowment uh, forever. This was I was there for two and a half years, as it turned out. But I went from there uh, to the Edna McConnell Clark Foundation, which is a foundation engaged primarily in in areas of social policy, particularly trying to improve conditions who were uh, at the time for people who are poor and disadvantaged in this country. And I spent, all told, uh, nearly nine years there uh, and working on issues of uh, prevention of homelessness, uh, urban middle school reform, and on issues of criminal justice and particularly conditions in, in our prisons. Uh, it was uh, a terrific experience. The foundation, I think, really distinguished itself in taking very kind of strategic, but at the same time hands-on committed approaches to trying to uh, improve social policies and public institutions uh, related uh, to people who are poor and disadvantaged in this country. It also helped to give me a greater appreciation for the degree to which uh, this society as a democracy is far from perfect. I mean, I still find it shocking that we would have more than two million people in this country incarcerated, for example. I mean, it is, in some, and yet that there is so little, so little recognition of it. And I continue to be dismayed at the quality of our public education, particularly in urban areas. Um, when I think of how important education is to the quality of democracy. Uh, we also had a program at the Clark Foundation. It was the only internationally oriented program in tropical disease control. And I could have supplemented my domestic work while at the Clark Foundation by keeping very much of a hand in international work through my activities with the Inter-American Dialogue and, and on the board of Human Rights Watch and uh, other international engagements. Uh, it, it never had occurred to me when I became a member of the board of CARE and indeed became chairman of the board that I would one day uh, actually join the staff and become uh, president of CARE. And in fact, when the board, when the search committee of the board initially asked me whether I considered doing so, I said absolutely not uh, because I had in fact appointed the search committee and it would have been an obvious conflict of interest. <laughs> Uh, but five months later, they came back at me, and uh, they, I was getting increasingly uh, frustrated because they weren't reporting to me on their progress. And they explained to me, well, we've been building a wall between us, and uh, we have, in fact, increased the numbers of our members, and now we want, we're really serious about your engaging with us in discussion. And I did, and uh, the, the short story is that uh, I found myself becoming president of CARE, thinking that I couldn't think of any job for which I could make a greater difference for good in the world. And it's been a terrific experience for these uh, last seven and a half years. And uh, you know, CARE is an organization that began as a food delivery organization responding to the 
uh, to the threat of famine in Europe after the Second World War. And we were very much a service delivery organization, very much kind of, if you will, a kind of unilateralist in our approach. That is, we controlled, know how to control complex logistical systems to be accountable. And we did those things and did them extremely well. But, you know, in the post-Cold War period, the world was changing in important ways. And during the period that I've been there on the staff, we have been very intent on becoming a more explicitly principled organization, uh, focusing, focusing not only on the symptoms of poverty, but trying to get at the, at the underlying causes. And that has set us into uh, uh, becoming more active in issues of, of policy advocacy and has uh, and increasingly we have come to realize that at the center of our work and development is the protection and advancement of human rights and we have been shifting from a kind of needs-based approach to our work to a rights-based approach to put it all very briefly um, and it's been just tremendously satisfying to see uh, those kinds of changes occurring in an organization of uh, 12 to 13,000 people. And it doesn't happen overnight. There need to be real strategies behind making these happen. Let me uh, end by just drawing out a few uh, lessons, uh, at least, uh, that may be helpful to you. Uh, one is uh, I would say just, you know, hang on to your idealism. Uh, keep it close to you. Let it be the source of your inspiration and your energy. I mean, after 40, nearly 40 years in public service, which is getting to be pretty respectable, I remain uh, an unreconstructed idealist. Uh, wiser, uh, perhaps, but uh, not the least jaded about my decades of experience. And I, I cling uh, tenaciously uh, to what the development economist and social philosopher Albert Hirschman called a bias for hope. And still, what makes my blood run faster about public service are the opportunities to resolve conflict, to make peace, to bring about justice, to protect the vulnerable, and to support the poor and disadvantaged. And every day, I still find myself energized by the vision that we have put together within CARE, which is to seek a world of hope, tolerance, and social justice, where poverty has been overcome and everyone lives in dignity and security. Secondly, I have uh, never sharply distinguish between my international and my domestic co commitments and wanted to put my in have not wanted to put myself in either of those two boxes I, and I'm glad to see that the Woodrow Wilson school seems to also to be trying to break down the walls between those traditionally uh, very separated fields uh, I recognize that nationalism is a political and geopolitical fact of life it has enormous power, but also imposes uh, serious, limita severe limitations. My starting point is the dignity inherent 
in every human being and the oneness of all humanity. In today's world, I believe that each of us has a responsibility uh, to be both citizens of our respective countries and at the same time citizens of the world. Thirdly, one of my clearest recollections from the Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson School was my first class with the development economist uh, W. Arthur Lewis. And he said back then that if he taught us nothing more, he hoped we would, that we might learn something about how and when to resign in our various jobs. Well, I've had an opportunity to give a lot of thought to that. And, uh, you know, I really, but I mention it because first, I think we tend to give a lot of thought, and you are, I'm sure, to, to what your next job will be. But I think it's important to be equally thoughtful about how we leave jobs. And I have found over the years that resignations uh, can be a bit like death, slow and painful, or sudden and merciful, or, and merciful. And just as our attitude about or toward death can help to define our attitude toward life, so too our attitude about losing or keeping our job can be liberating or debilitating. Public service, I firmly believe, is not for the faint-hearted or for the security-minded. And the fourth, uh, fourth lesson is, uh, when I started out in my career, I probably had an overly simplistic uh, and perhaps naive view of what constituted success or failure. With experience, I've come to understand that low points and high points can be one and the same, and that interruptions in pursuit of terrorist goals still can be opportunities. In Chile, for example, the military coup of General Pinochet and the repression that came with it were a bitter blow, as was uh, the interruption of our Ford Foundation work in developing graduate training and research in Chilean universities. But I have never felt more fulfillment uh, than in helping to save the lives of hundreds of Chilean scholars, uh, scientists, and students. And similarly, while I was sorely disappointed to be fired as president of the Inter-American Foundation, uh, it was also, in many respects, uh, one of the most personally rewarding periods of my life. Uh, the support that uh, I received and that the Foundation received in Congress, in the media, and from colleagues uh, was much more than I had a right to expect. And a couple of years later, I recall uh, it was an interview with the trustees of the Clark Foundation, and a trustee asked if I had any skeletons in my closet. And I confessed about my having been fired as president of the Inter-American Foundation. And he and one of the trustees, uh, the most conservative of the trustees, responded by saying that I should uh, wear that experience as a badge of honor. Uh, and, of course, most importantly for me, uh, what happened at the Inter-American Foundation, as I say, is that the institution continued and the second shoe never dropped. 
Uh, there are so many other lessons that I wish that I could share with you if time permitted, uh, but I'll restrict myself to just one more. It is about appreciating the value of colleagueship and friendship. Uh, you may have heard the old saw about the, the dean at the Harvard Law School who told his first-year students to look to their left and to look to their right. Uh, and then the, then the dean observed that one of them would not be there at graduation. Well, uh, by contrast, if I were to urge you to do the same, to look to your left and to look to your right, I think what I'd say is that uh, it is likely that at least one of those two students will be your friend and colleague decades from now. Um, I, cannot, I cannot wait myself until tomorrow evening when I will see uh, many of the members of my class at the Woodrow Wilson School are having a spontaneous reunion here. And many of them have been friends and colleagues in all of the years since then. And if there is a Woodrow Wilson mafia, I have to admit, I don't think it's such a bad thing. People committed to public service very much need one another. Um, and in closing, I guess what I would say is that uh, I, I really don't think, uh, well, or put it more positively, I think we bring, all of us who have been students here, bring with us our values and our motivations. Uh, for me, I, when I came, I had a particular interest in connecting uh, U.S. resources with the aspirations of people in developing countries. Uh, but the contribution that the Woodrow Wilson School makes is, I think, in providing this kind of rounded, multidisciplinary approach uh, to looking at social issues and trying to be helpful in training us to think about how to put together strategies, again, in a rounded way uh, to attack uh, those issues. What, is really, what it really does is to help to marry the, the idealism that each of us brings to the school uh, with effectiveness and to marry the decency that each of us has uh, with excellence. And I think it is precisely that combination which does make for the best public service. I'd be delighted to uh, answer questions or engage in any discussion that Yes. Um, thank you. There is a Woodrow Wilson School uh, mafia. <laughs> the Don is. <laughs> and as one of our capitalists, I just want to ask why the Care Fellows Program has been discontinued. Oh, good question. It's a shame. <laughs> Well, uh, we do have uh, at least a dozen, uh, I, I don't necessarily publicize this within care, but we have at least a dozen graduates of the Woodrow Wilson School who are at uh, care. The, uh, the, Woodrow, the, the, the fellowship program uh, was actually, I have to admit, this was my innovation. It was something, 
as I was preparing to leave uh, the Clark Foundation to go to uh, to go to care, uh, I I wanted to put together this fellowship program, and I was able in that transition to persuade a couple of private donors to put up uh, well what turned out to be a little more than a million dollars to finance the first three years of the program. And uh, what we did was uh, to select in year one for a two-year program uh, six six fellows coming out of uh, master's programs around the country and we had you know well over 300 applications and those six fellows whom we recruited are all still with us and then we did it again a second year uh, and selected five more and uh, not all of them are still with us but still some are it's great great program but what happened was that we then had made a mistake of having it evaluated and what it showed was that it was tremendously successful, but it was also expensive. And everybody at CARE wanted to be a CARE fellow. And, and we are importantly committed also to, to developing our national staff around the world. And this turned out not to be a good vehicle for their development. And so we, we, we put it on hold and uh, try to sort of smuggle in uh, similar people but not in quite the same competitive process and to you know, try to give them some semblance of that experience but we don't have the fellowship program at least for the time being. It was a great program and I, I wish we could have continue, continued it and maybe we'll reinstate it at some point. Yes? Based on your experience, can you describe some of the advantages of pursuing social change through a foundation? Through the four? Through working for a foundation. The, uh, uh, you know, I think working for the, what I'll loosely call the better foundations can be a terrific experience. And say the Ford Foundation, which is kind of the flagship foundation among professional foundations, I think, is does first-class uh, professional work. Um, I think a, one disadvantage for me, and one of the things I enjoy about care, is that uh, the foundations, on the one side, the, the foundations are very privileged organizations. They have very limited constituencies to which they must respond. At CARE, you know, we have to respond to our donors, our institutional donors. We have to respond to the hundreds of thousands of Americans who give to CARE each year. We have to respond to the people in the communities with whom we're working around the world. Um, we have to respond to uh, our 13,000 uh, staff members around the world. Um, it's It's a complex kind of set of demands that are placed on us. I think it's it's great. It's sort of you feel as though you're operating in the real world. The with the foundations, precisely the strength is that they're protected from many of those pressures. And I think that if you if you go into a foundation uh, too young 
or too inexperienced and stay for too long, it could be a, a rare, excessively rarefied experience. I think it's important to, to come in and out. And I do think that foundations can contribute importantly to social change through their grant making. And they can contribute particularly if they're willing to take some real risks, if they're willing uh, to get involved in policy issues, for example, and to get involved in frontline kinds of ways. Unfortunately, uh, a number of foundations are, are you know, pretty hesitant to do that because the last thing they want to do is to become controversial. Um, so you have to pick and choose. And you can always be a uh, young Turk within a foundation. Yes. You mentioned briefly the, the kind of the, the method of well, the, the change for, um, within care, between look, look, stopping. Pardon me, not looking so much at a needs-based approach, but more of a right-based right. approach. When you're talking about an organization as large as care and with such a broad reach, I assume it all comes down to leadership. But how do you go about making an institutional change like that, or empowering a national staff? How do you do that at every level in every country? Well, first of all, leadership has to come from every level, too. I mean, it can't be, certainly in an organization like CARE, it can't sort of just sort of come from the top, or can't, certainly can't come from issuing an edict, whether we're talking about the, the building of the vision that I was talking about or the, the rights-based approach. And I, you know, I tried when I was on the board and when I first came to the staff to sort of promote putting human rights at the core of what we were doing, and I realized, um, you know, that I was getting a lot of pushback and that first uh, there were staff who thought, well, I was trying to make care into an organization like Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch and that that meant to them you know, that our sort of our modus operandi was to embarrass governments. And they didn't see that as a role of care, but they just made that kind of connection. And then you had staff who were well-schooled in relief and development work, but for, for whom human, human rights was new territory. And so it's not surprising that they would have been hesitant, you know, to go into this new area. And so I kind of backed off and actually um, at a certain point enlisted Andrew Jones, who is also a graduate of this school, who had been my special assistant. And he began organizing, in effect, discussion groups with different parts of care. He became a kind of worldwide advisor on rights-based approaches. And these discussion groups turned into very lively debating sessions. And we began to find that some of our most effective and most thoughtful staff members were really struggling and grappling with issues that had to do with the connection of human rights to our work, and that there was a sort of whole different kind of field of discourse that was happening. And then we began, we, we built uh, case studies uh, from care experience to feed into these discussions. And pretty soon, it just began to move. And we, uh, and when we did our strategic planning, 
uh, two and a half years ago, for the next five years, we decided to make uh, the advancement of rights-based approaches. And the, the we is a very large we. These are people throughout the care organization. We decided collectively to make the advancement of rights-based approaches to a programming one of our three uh, principal strategic uh, directions for the future. So it's been, you know, a, a gradual process with some steps forward and backward. And it isn't done yet. It will take still some years of further training, research, case studies, building of experience, pilot uh, pilot projects, and all. But all of that is going on now, and it's exciting, and it fits with the vision that I was talking about of uh, seeking a world of hope, tolerance, and social justice. Transitioning an organization such as CARES, transitioning from um, being primarily a humanitarian organization to more uh, political advocacy and addressing the root causes of poverty, and perhaps this is something that you'll talk about more on Saturday morning. Uh, but I was, wonder, I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about some of the um, conflicts of interest that, that rise up in that transition. Um, it's something that uh, we've thought a lot about here, some of my colleagues and I. Um, and how do you continue to do humanitarian work, which is based on um, principles of neutrality, of uh, you know, observing the medias first, um, while engaging the political activity of um, advocacy? And um, often those two are somewhat problematic and contradictory in the field. Um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on how, how, how you reconcile those, how does care, what was the process that, that the organization was yeah. Um, we and again, this has been an evolutionary process. Our genesis was as a relief organization, relieving suffering, saving lives. And in uh, well, we began there, and then increasingly we were moving toward becoming a longer-term development organization. And there were many people on our staff at a certain stage, actually at the stage in which I joined the board, who thought that to be a, an advocate for development meant that you had to abandon the work and relief, that the two were at odds with one another. I think the way we've been evolving is more to realizing that uh, people in extreme poverty, commu families, communities in extreme poverty, are always on the edge of crises. And there are times when they may need relief. And certainly one of those cases is maybe in the midst of a violent conflict situation or in a natural disaster. But increasing, and at that moment, the humanitarian imperative takes over. Save lives, relieve suffering. But our our impetus is to try to get people into some sort of uh, of self self reliance uh, as quickly as possible, and so we are in many cases now among the first who will be uh, trying to to convince the World Food Program or the UN agencies or AID that they should stop free food distribution. And, and emphasize uh, getting people sort of 
back into situations where they can produce their own. I think that um, I, I don't myself use the term kind of neutrality. Uh, we use the term in care today, uh, impartiality and independence. We think in, in, uh, impartiality and independence are really important in humanitarian crises. I, I don't think it's, and we, we lean over backward uh, not to be partisan. Uh, the one exception being perhaps in a, situa in a situation of genocide. But um, what we uh, what we we realize that any time you're engaged in distribution of goods or services, you are in fact uh, engaged in political activity, and that um, you know to advance our work we have to be politically conscious. And at times, we have to directly enter into the uh, political processes. We're still learning how to do it and to do it well. Uh, and we're doing it now uh, in terms of our advocacy work in a, in a, in a selective way. Um, and what is happening is an interesting dynamic because the more that we do it and show some effectiveness in doing it, then the more the demand principally from within the staff itself comes to do more and more. And so at one point there was trouble sort of, or the, the challenge might have been getting staff engaged, and now there is still the challenge of getting people really equipped so we can do it well. But now in some cases the problem is holding people back and explaining that we have limited resources and we can't do it all and do it well. That's a great question uh, on which to end. But Peter, let me thank you um, again for coming. Uh, it was really quite an inspiring um, talk. Thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted to see you.